Good evening. It's great to be here with you tonight. Wanted to remind you that tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer. And so we'll be gathering, is it up in the fellowship hall? At seven in the morning, if you want to stop off on your way to work and just lift the nation and our church and different needs uh, up to the Lord in prayer, we'll just be having a a brief time of prayer early in the morning. And then if you can't make that one, or even if you can, we're going to do it again at noon. And so uh, feel free to stop by and just spend some time with the body in prayer. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews in our detour from studying through the Old Testament. Hebrews 12 is a, is a great chapter. I know I say that every chapter, but it's true. Hebrews 12 is, it's kind of like a, a coach's pep talk at halftime. The Christians have come a long ways. The church has developed They've grown, good things have happened, and yet at the same time, the author of Hebrews has this sense and is giving them the idea, the very reality that, look, you guys have come a long way, but don't quit. Right now, your future, your hope hangs in the balance, and it comes down to, are you going to stick with the new covenant, are you going to stick with the gospel? Are you going to return to the Judaism that you grew up with? Are you going to return to that legalism and as a result forfeit all that God's trying to do? And so throughout the book, he's showing how superior the new covenant, how superior Jesus is to the old covenant, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, and how Jesus Christ as our high priest who could say it was finished. That's one thing that the Old Testament priests could never say that it was finished because it wasn't. They had to continuously keep coming back and keep sacrificing. And yet Jesus Christ after he accomplished what he did on the cross and he rose from the dead and it emphasizes over and over again he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He finished it. And now it's just a question of us enjoying that which he has accomplished. Us living in the grace that he purchased for us. And yet, our human tendency is to want to shy away from that, to return to a legal system, to return to living in a, in a sort of a substitute for the Old Testament. And that's a very real danger today even among Christianity, where people are constantly trying to add to the grace of God. They're constantly trying to make the Christian life a, a life of law rather than a life of grace. And so now in chapter 12, as he's just wrapping up his book, the only thing left after this is that awesome chapter, chapter 13 on love. And, and we'll be covering that next week. And I, by the way, I think it'll be communion next week as well. So um, that'll be good. But here in chapter 12, Sunday morning, we went over the first two verses. We'll just look at them briefly again and then move through this chapter. Remember, we just went through Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, so-called. The, the list of these Old Testament people each one of them flawed in serious ways. Each one of them exemplary in some ways and not so exemplary in others. And yet, as we see going through the story, these were all people who 
demonstrate the grace of God by God using people who have flaws, but then also these were people who at one time or another, each of them, had to stand up and say, I'm going to do what God tells me to do, even though it doesn't look like a good idea. I'm gonna break the rules of what conventional wisdom is, and instead, I'm gonna be willing to follow God wherever he leads me. And so I won't re-preach that sermon again. I think I've done it a few times. <laughs> But now he says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we've seen what's happened in their lives and how God used people who had flaws. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let's run with endurance the race that's set before us. So Coach Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it was Paul, is saying, Understand this, you've seen what's happened in these other people's lives. You've seen their failures, you've seen their successes. But you've discovered that when God used them in great ways, it was always in unconventional ways as well. Now, he said, you're running a race. And it's an endurance race, it's not a sprint. It's something that it takes time. You can't afford to quit. You see the witnesses. Now, let's get rid of anything that's tripping us up, anything that's holding us back, all of those things that would weigh us down, that would burden us down. He's thinking probably specifically about the law itself, but secondarily about anything that comes into the life that complicates the simplicity that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the new covenant of God putting his law in our hearts. And he says, don't add anything extra, but you receive the grace of God. That's the way he's always done it. It's always been by faith. Without faith, you can't please God. Now, if you wanna please God, stop adding other things. Start to look for what can I spare? What can I do without? What can I get rid of? Are there ways in which I can just streamline my life in such a way that following him, listening to him, hearing from him becomes a very natural thing to do. Because remember the essence of the new covenant, besides the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave, was the idea that he wants to live with us in relationship rather than in religion. Now, often the question comes up, well, come on, if you're saying that God just wants to write his law in our hearts, are you really saying that all you have to do is just listen to God and do what you think he says? And I say, yes, that is the essence of the new covenant. But maybe you, certainly I know I have many times thought that God was leading me in a particular direction. And after doing my best to follow him, I fell flat on my face and it, it didn't work out the way I thought it would. And that's the hazard of the new covenant. But in new covenant living, that's why it's so important to not allow ourselves to get polluted, to not allow our lives to become complicated. Because the more that we remove the weight, the more that we clear the, the stage of all the extras, the more that then we deal with our sin in an honest way, then we find that we're not going to be tripped up the way we used to. We find that it's a lot easier to hear from God and to allow the Spirit of God to, in that intimate relationship, 
lead and guide us in a very natural way. But the more natural stuff we put in the way, the more that we accumulate complications in our lives, in relationships that maybe aren't healthy, in associations that aren't edifying, in activities that aren't fruitful, in information that isn't helpful, in entertainment that doesn't lift us up, then the more that we allow our lives to become polluted, obligations and expenses and time commitments and all those sorts of things, then the harder it is to hear from God. And he's saying, this is a long race. This is a race that is going to go to the one who endures. And so in light of that, seeing how fleeting life is, seeing how your whole story can turn on one event as it did for most of the people in Hebrews chapter 11, realizing in essence that today might be your opportunity for greatness or tomorrow something may happen in your life that how you deal with that particular situation, that particular decision, that might be what determines whether or not you accomplish what God wants you to accomplish in your life. So he says, in light of all that, Dump the extras. Get rid of the weight. Simplify your life so that it comes down to it's, it's Jesus and your relationship with him. Not that you don't have anything. Not that you just put on a white robe and let's all just climb up on the roof of the church and wait for Jesus to come back. But it's to make sure that nothing in our life is a weight. It's not that, okay, go get rid of all your possessions or don't do anything but spend time with the Lord. The idea is don't allow anything that you have to weigh you down. Now, if there's something that, if God told you to get rid of it, it would be hard for you. You know, if I, you're sitting here thinking, okay, what could be a weight in my life? And you go, well, the motorhome? Oh, man, I, w- I hope God doesn't want me to do that. Get rid of the motorhome. But if you think, the motorhome, I can take it or leave it. The cars, they don't matter. Material success, my job, you know, my hobbies and sports and what I watch on TV. If it's not a big deal to you, if God said get rid of it, you'd go, yeah, no problem. Then you're okay. It's not a weight. But if you'd have a hard time getting rid of something, giving it up, what if God told you to give up sugar? Oh, no, not that. It might be good to give it up for a while. It might be good to deny yourself something that means so much to you that, it's a, that as soon as I suggest, as soon as it pops into your mind that maybe you'd have to get rid of something, that you rebel, that you defend yourself, that you start making excuses, well, that's your little warning. But anyway, he's saying, let's get rid of the weight and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus. Am I re-preaching Sunday's message? I'm, this is like deja vu. Okay, we're going to move on. Look at Jesus. The key is watching him, looking at him, looking at his example, staying focused on, okay, I'll move. <laughs> but he, because he realized what it was going to accomplish, the joy that was set before him, he was willing to take it, even though it was horrifying what he had to go through, Even though certainly it was embarrassing, it was shameful, it was awful for the God of heaven to be treated that way. But because he saw the joy, he endured it, even though despising the shame. 
not worrying about what anybody thought. And now he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That appears several times in Hebrews. The idea is he finished it. Now watch him when you're having a hard time. So he gives us that pep talk right off the, right off the bat. In the middle of our lives, when we are in the middle of, of, you know, boy, we've seen God do some things, but now there's a future ahead of us. He's saying, look, it's time for you to strip down and realize you can win this thing. This is winnable. This God has already purchased your victory. But it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you getting rid of things that get in the way. It's going to cost you worrying about what people think of you. It's going to cost you the law. It's going to cost you living habitually instead of living obediently. It's going to force you to listen and pay attention when God's working in your life. But it's an endurance race. He's saying, hang in there. Now we come to verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. So he says, when you're looking at Jesus, notice what he did and how he handled it. Now, he went before you, and he was willing to take it. He hurt. He was lonely. He was crying. He was sweating like drops of blood. He ultimately was nailed to a cross and killed. And he says, now I know you're going through a hard time, but can it really compare to what Jesus did for you? When you look at his pain that he endured and he said it was worth it, and he did it because he loved you, can you take what's happening to you right now in light of your love for him? Can you see the joy that's set before you and say, I'm willing to take it? And then he says kind of, you know, come on, I don't see any of you bleeding yet. And that may be just a reference to physically bleeding, but certainly in the history of the church, there are plenty of people who have. But it may also be a a kind of double entendre in a way referring to Jesus' blood that was shed to pay the penalty for our sins and saying, come on, which of you is qualified to pay for your own sins. Which of you could go in in returning back to that sacrificial system? What is your blood going to mean? So he says, think of him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I might have told you the story before, but I love the story anyway. I had a friend who used to go to Calvary Costa Mesa named Jim King, and he ran in ultra marathons. And he was unbelievable. But one year, when he was running, he was the favorite. He had set the record every year. And this year, he trained completely for it. This race, it's called the Western State. And it, and it goes, it's a 100-mile race. It goes down below sea level. It goes up over 7,000 feet. You run through snow. You run through desert, over rocks. It's just a, a, a meat grinder of a race. And this year, he was ready for it. He trained. He was sponsored. And he was in great shape. And one of the things that he did, he hid water and food all along the trail. He had markings so he wouldn't get lost. I mean, he was ready. He trained on the trail for several weeks before the race. And he had a friend who came and paced him for the first, you know, 40 miles or something. 
And so it was great, and they had the College Career Fellowship from Calvary Costa Mesa. At each pit stop was there. Somebody was reading the Bible to him. Somebody else was giving him water and feeding him, and it was cool. And it was on, it was on Why World of Sports, big feature deal. Well, he was running, and they were singing praise songs, he and the guy that was pacing him. And he ended up tripping and falling because he's like looking up to the Lord and didn't see a branch across the path. And he, and he fell and cut his knee open really bad. And it was only after about 20 miles, so he has 80 miles to go. And the whole rest of the race, I mean, he had a bandage tied around it, and they kept following him. They were fascinated because his leg looked horrible. And then correcting for his bad leg, he ended up, his other knee got water on it, swelled up really big, and, and it was, he still won the race. But when, when Jim McKay went to interview him at the end of the race, he said, doesn't that hurt? And he said, you better believe it hurts. And he said, well, how can you, how could you take it for a hundred, you know, for 80 miles of, of agony? And he said, Jim said, you know, every step I felt like electric shocks going all the way up my leg, every single step. But he said, I thought about what Jesus endured for me on the cross, and it just didn't seem like much. And I think most of the times, the things that we're hurting over, the things that we're upset about, it doesn't even hurt as much as a cut open leg and a swollen knee, much less what Jesus endured on the cross. And, and so Coach Paul is here saying, look, you guys, I feel for you. I understand. I know it hurts. Life is tough. It's an endurance race. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll realize there's nothing that you're enduring that really can compare with what he endured for you. And he made it. He did it. He went ahead of you. And there are plenty of other people who are going through worse misery than you are. And so just this reminder that one reason we're looking at him is to see what he did and how he handled it so that we'll know how to handle the pain that's in our own lives. So that we won't become weary and discouraged in your souls. You haven't yet resisted to bloodshed. It's a real danger for us to get tired. And it's a real danger for us to become discouraged. And for him to say this, you might say, come on, that's even more discouraging. You're just kicking me when I'm down. But the fact is, it's so important that we deal with discouragement and that we deal with being tired when we are. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Sabbath law, for instance. But it's also, God is there to pick us up. But you know what the job mainly of the church is? You know what our responsibility is to each other? Something the Bible calls edification. It means to build up. I think a lot of times we think the job of somebody in the body of Christ is to discourage each other. To point out all of our flaws. And, and there is a place for helpful criticism. There are times when I've just been so grateful that someone came up to me and pointed something out that where I was in error, when I had a blind spot and I couldn't see it. And that is an important part of the body of Christ, but it's nowhere close to the most important part. The most important thing we have to do for each other is to encourage each other, to edify each other, to build each other up. We should be cheerleaders, not critics. And, and so here he's saying, don't get discouraged. Don't let yourself get too run down. Look at him and realize the way he lived his life, it was a long run at it. It was tough. And so realize that anything you're suffering, put it into perspective. But also, if you keep your eyes on him, you won't get so burned out. 
Why? Because you're winning. There's nothing that's more frustrating for those of you who are sports fans when you see a team that is completely in the game and yet a bad thing happens to them. And they start acting like they just lost the game. You get a bad call from an official or somebody makes an error or someone misses a dunk or whatever. And, and all of a sudden it's like, oh man, this is over. It's all over. And you go, wait, the game's not over. There's that, that famous, uh, you know, was it Yogi Berra who said it ain't over until the fat lady sings or something. And it's the idea that, come on, until it's over, don't act like it is. See, what he's saying here is, guys, I know how you feel, but we've got a race to run and you can win this. You can do it, but you've got to keep going. You need to be encouraged. You can't afford to, to give up because that's the way you lose this race. The only way you lose this race of life is to give up, is to quit. And he says, don't quit. Don't come short. Don't give up. Don't let up. Realize, come on, you can still do this. And so then he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. This is a quote from Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there who a father doesn't chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons at all. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here he now shifts gears a little bit, and he begins to talk about discipline. He begins to talk about what it is to be a kid who's being disciplined by a parent. And drawing this connection and saying, you know, God is our father. Don't you understand that if a, if a parent loves their child... They're going to discipline them. Now, this word for chasten, there are a lot of people who've just gone crazy on it and just made it about spanking kids, but that's really not what it means. It could be referring to that. Certainly there is one reference in here to that, but it, I think it's too bad that it was translated that way because the word, actually the Greek word paiduo means to educate. And Really what he's saying is, look, if, if a dad is going to teach his kid, you're not going to like it sometimes. And certainly that includes discipline. But we don't learn, we don't grow without pain. That's just the way it is. We have to be stretched. It's, it's imperative that we be stretched. And what you have when you have somebody, a, a child who is never put in an uncomfortable situation, how are they going to learn? He says, we learned, remember back in chapter 5, that amazing statement that says that Jesus learned obedience when he was in the flesh. So even Jesus, through going through what he went through, somehow it made him more equipped to do what he was called to do. And so if it's good for him, it's certainly good for us. 
Now, a, a slight detour, because nowadays there are people who just believe that what you should that you should never, you know, put your child in any kind of an uncomfortable situation. That you should protect them all that you can. That you shouldn't discipline them. That that to spank a child is just a horrible thing and it's abusive. And 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 nowadays in society, it's it's kind of assumed that the kids should run the family, that they should do whatever, and you just make them comfortable and keep writing the checks, keep paying the bills, and, and somehow they're going to discover it on their own what life is all about. One thing, you get the picture here, even though it's just by analogy, definitely that's obviously not God's perspective. As, as Paul here is talking about, remember when you were a kid? Remember how much that hurt sometimes? And yet look at the person that it made you now. And he's saying, God is doing the same thing for you. Now, it's true in any kind of education. If, you don't, if it doesn't hurt, you don't benefit. If it's easy, it's, it's no good. I, I remember I had a college class one time, a history class, and the professor was into some new kooky theories. You know, it was back in the 70s, and the guy had probably had too much acid or something. But his, his approach was, you get so many points just for showing up to class. And so if you come every day, you'll get a minimum of a C in the class. But then you had quizzes. There were 10 points, true and false, every Friday. And if you got seven out of 10 on that quiz, you got the points for that quiz. And if you passed all the quizzes, you'd get an A in the class if you were there all the time. Now the other thing, of course, they were true and false. Also, each quiz you were allowed to take up to three times if you needed to. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out the second time on a true and false test. If you said true last time and you missed it, it's false. And so this progressive educator, it was one of the easiest A's I ever had. I sat in class and slept in the back row, my head against the wall. And everyone who came every time did that. It's kind of funny. About half the class flunked the class. It was an interesting experience. It was so easy, but they just didn't. How do you flunk it? You just don't show up, and you just don't take these quizzes. I didn't even buy the book. I didn't listen to the lectures. I didn't take notes. I guessed at the true and false questions, and I always got them at least by the second time around. And I got an A in the class. But that's not one of the classes that I look back and say, boy, I really learned a lot from that class. But I've had classes that were hard, teachers who were scary, intimidating. And I look back and I felt like, you know, something really happened to me in that class. I learned, I benefited. And maybe at the time, I couldn't stand the teacher. I thought, how could you be so rude? Somebody ought to look into this. Somebody ought to complain about this. And yet when it was over, I realized I really grew from even sometimes being treated unfairly, irrationally, yet I benefited and I grew. And I think that's the point he's making here, that in the flesh, there are going to be times when you're treated even unfairly and yet you're going to benefit from it. God's going to use it in your life to make you who you're supposed to be, who he wants you to be. Now, I should just say, the worst thing parents can do is just to be completely permissive. I think it's a, a real injustice that often we don't ever submit our kids to any kind of discomfort. 
It's, it's at our own peril and at theirs. They'll resent us for it. At the same time, I think that discipline can be an awful thing if it's not handled right. And I am not just one of these nuts about, you just got to spank your kids. Everybody needs to spank your kids. You know, I don't, if it's your 19-year-old, bend them over and whack them. You know, it's not that. I, to me, there are some people who probably shouldn't spank their kids. And there isn't anything in the Bible that just mandates that's the only way to discipline kids. And I've seen people use this passage to do that. Other passages in Proverbs as well. The emphasis is that if you're going to teach your kids the way that God wants you to, you're going to have to subject them to discomfort. You're going to have to deny them certain things. You're going to have to stretch them in certain ways. And that's all he's saying. Now, there are people today who, in the name of biblical discipline, are just simply abusive of kids. And I've had to deal with that a lot in a lot of lives. And I've picked up the pieces. And I've seen what happens in people's lives when parents just arrogantly you know, beat their children, injure them, hurt them, and, and do it in anger and not in love. And, and you know, believe me, I, I want to make that very clear. That's not what we're talking about. And, if, and if, if there is a parent who has a problem controlling their temperament and their anger, or if they've, because of having been abused themselves, they tend toward overdoing it physically on abuse, I would say find some other way to discipline your kids. You, know, you shouldn't be doing it if you can't do it in love, if you can't do it. And a good way to think about it is here God is being seen as our Heavenly Father disciplining us. Now, how often does he really spank us? In fact, how often does he really make us suffer all of the consequences of what we do? Often people get the idea that every time something happens, you need to suffer all the consequences. But God's grace... God is a gracious father to us, and so certainly he lets us off the hook. Have you ever done this? I have. When I do something and God just convicts me of it, and I think, oh, this is going to turn out really bad. I know I'm going to get nailed for this. I know it's going to create a big problem. And then it just kind of goes on and you get away with it. I'll say something that's kind of, you know, inappropriate, might be offensive to people, and I think, oh, man, I'm going to get letters, and people are going to be upset, and, and, and I repent and, and ask God to help me not to do things like that again, and, and it just blows over, and God just goes, it's okay. And so he, what he is saying here, and please don't understand that there's no room for grace there is room for grace. That's the whole point of Hebrews in a way. And, and yet what he's saying here is, if you're going to grow, you're going to hurt. And if a parent is really going to educate their children, and I believe that we have that primary responsibility, it doesn't mean everyone's called to, to homeschool their kids. If God's called you to homeschool your kids, you understand this very well. And if not, and you're supporting a school in doing it, that's fine too. That's just as well. But it's still your job to help your children to become what God wants them to be, to raise them up, to train them. And a part of that has to be that you'll stretch them, that you'll subject them to discomfort, because life isn't comfortable. And the only way to learn how to deal with pain is to have some pain. So when I coach, I coach my girls' softball team, there are days when I make them hurt, and I know it's going to hurt. But I know that only if I beat them down, only if they're so tired that they think they can't catch another ball and then they still have to do it or they still have to run another lap, that when we get in a game like we did a couple years ago where we're in the 19th inning, they're going to know they can do it. They're not ever going to quit 
because they've been more tired than they'll ever be in a game. And that's what God is doing to us. He uses these things in our lives. And he even uses people who are doing things unfairly to us. He'll even the hardships of life, he'll take them and he'll make them, he'll turn them into education for us. And so what he's saying in this section is, think about it like when you were a kid. Remember what it's like. Some of the most hurtful things in your life taught you things that maybe you couldn't learn any other way. Sometimes you have to follow your instincts and find out the dead end that they lead you to, to know that you can't always just trust your feelings. Sometimes the only way to learn how creepy a guy can be is to date one, you know? And, and, and sometimes in so many ways to be disappointed and then to understand how it feels to be disappointed so that you don't ever want to do that to someone else. There are so many lessons that God has for us that come to us through the normal educational process of life. Really what he's saying here, more than just being spanked by a parent, because in their culture that was handled a lot differently, trust me, and, and you wouldn't want to do it the way they did it. But what he's really saying is the school of hard knocks, it's worthwhile. And don't think that you're going to get through this endurance race, this marathon that we call life, without going through the school of hard knocks along the way. And he's saying, it's going to be good for you. It's going to help you. There have been times in my life when I was just screaming out to get out of a situation. And now I look back on it and I say, I'm so thankful that God didn't give me an easy out. I'm so grateful that many of my prayers have gone unanswered, or really more correctly, many of my prayers God has answered no. I'm so glad he hasn't given me everything I asked for. I'm so glad, and yet I feel like God is such a loving father to me. I feel like God has spoiled me beyond imagination. And, 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 I, and I don't think it's a bad thing to spoil kids because God spoils us. But at the same time, he also takes us through these educational processes where we're stretched, where we hurt, where we don't understand, where we can't figure it out, where it's just because dad says so. And that balance that God has is a balance that we need to seek in our own lives. But we also need to realize that as God's children, and by the way, the word for son that's translated son in here, huios, is generally referring to a grown son. It's not, this isn't talking about five-year-olds. That's really not the idea of the passage. But he's saying, you're going to, to school. It's like boot camp. It's going to be good for you. It's going to prepare you. You're going to learn things that you couldn't have learned any other way. And he said, if you learn from your dad being the way he was, and certainly your dad wasn't perfect. I know, I'm a dad, we're not perfect. And yet what he's saying there, I love it, it's that even if your dad got carried away, even those times in which they mistreated you, and I know growing up I was endured all sorts of horrible abuse. I wouldn't recommend to anyone that they be raised like me. I would hope no child would ever have to endure some of the things I had to endure. But I have to tell you, I have to be honest, God has cashed it in in ways that are unbelievable. God has used experiences that I've had in my life to where I was able to be there and comfort someone else. I was able to understand what someone else was going through. I was strengthened as a result of being made weak. And in those times, in those moments, I felt like 
I'm actually glad that I've been through the hardest things in my life. I'm actually thankful that I know that kind of pain. I'm actually grateful to have come through it. Because then I can not only understand someone else, but I can testify to them, you'll make it, you can get through this. This isn't the end. Don't quit. Don't stop. God can turn your life around. He can make something beautiful out of it. He can bless you beyond your wildest imaginations. And he's going to do it. And that's the hope that comes from knowing that when hard things happen to us, that we're going to benefit from them. That God will use them. He, it's not him that's doing them necessarily. But he's the one who's doing the paiduo, the education. He's the one that's teaching us as we go through what we're going through. And it never seems joyful for the present. It's not supposed to be. It's painful. It's supposed to hurt, nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And it's not just the idea of the guy that's beating his head against the wall because it feels so good when he stops. It's not just that. It's a positive work that God does in our lives whereby we can only discover peace when we know and appreciate how it is in contrast to when you don't have it. You know, they say absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I'm convinced sometimes it's only when you don't have something that you appreciate when you had it. And that's a part of our education. And he's saying, understand this, there's a fruit that's going to come in your life. Today, you may be in a situation where you're just in absolute turmoil, where life is hurting so bad and it's so confusing and frustrating and all of those things. And you feel like, I don't know if I can make it. I don't even know if God loves me anymore. Hey, how much of this can I take? And he stands there at the other end of it with his arms outstretched. And he says, on the other side of this lesson, you're going to have such peace. And this is going to contribute toward your discovering the righteousness that he wants to place within your life so that you don't have to follow rules so that you can listen to him and have him give his righteousness to you. That feeling of understanding that all of your failure, he doesn't remember it anymore. He's forgotten it. He's put it as far as the east is from the west. Fruit's going to come from everything that happens. That's the beauty of Romans 8.28. And God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here in Hebrews 12, specifically, he's basically saying life is going to hurt anyway. Submit to it. Accept it. Realize that you can battle through it. And you're going to come out on the other side and it's going to feel so good to finish the race. It's going to feel so. I think of people who ultimately they go to be with the Lord and, and it says that when we go to see him, he'll wipe tears away. And I kind of suspect that some of those tears might be when we get there and we see it and it's so real to us finally. And we think, I wish I had lived my life differently. I wish I could have shared this with a few more people. I, uh, and, and he wipes that away, graciously forgives our failure. We're not going to think about it anymore. But for maybe that brief fleeting moment, imagine the thought of what we wasted. And he is saying, look, get back in the race. Don't give up. Don't quit. You're going to win. It's, 
It's been done for you. He's already sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. But come on, you can do this. It's a good kind of hurt, he's saying. He goes on to say, therefore, verse 12, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. So now the coach is saying, look, this is good. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way life is. You're going to get through it. And then he says, now look, it's time to get up and get going. It's time to start moving again. If you don't exercise that which you have, if you're not doing what God has given you to do, you run the risk of a career-ending injury, a dislocation, he says. So come on, strengthen yourself. It, it makes me think of the pep talk that God gave to Elijah when he, after the calling fire from heaven and then Jezebel's threatening him and he's off on Mount Sinai, hiding in a cave, wanting to die. And finally, you know, there's the storm and the earthquake, the fire. And, and then Jesus, God speaks to him in a still small voice. And, you know, says, hey, what are you doing, Elijah? And Elijah goes through his little whiny story a few times. And he didn't really answer any of his questions, except he said, you know, it's not just you. I got all kinds of prophets, you know, that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. I got a guy named Elisha. He's going to come along and help you. I got a guy that you're going to anoint as king. Now, come on. Let's head down the mountain. Let's get back to work, Elijah. And that's what God wants to say to us sometimes. It's not that he doesn't know the pain. He's felt the pain. It's not that it isn't hard for him to see us enduring it. It is. He, it's the fruit of the sin that, that came into this world because of man's poor choices. And that pains God greatly to see it. But he sees what he's going to do in your life. And so he says, look, I understand. But it's all under control. And I guarantee you tonight, there isn't anything happening in your life right now that's out of control. There isn't any kind of pain that you're suffering right now that not only does he understand, but he has a peaceable solution to it. And he is going to work it out, and you're going to grow from it. You're going to grow up from it. And he will make it, he'll turn it into a blessing in your life, even if it's there because of your sin or someone else's sin. And what he is saying to you is he puts his arms around you. He says, hey, I know. Believe me, I know I've been there. But now, come on. Let's just make a, make a beeline for the goal line. Let's look at Jesus Let's keep our eyes focused on him and keep moving. Because if you stop moving, that's how you lose. If you turn back, you're going to lose. If you want to leave what he has given you because the road is too rough and you're going to head back to legalism, are you going to go back to the old covenant? That's so much worse. That would be so foolish, he's saying. Don't do that. You've been delivered from that. Don't be like the children of Israel out in the desert wishing they were back in Egypt being slaves for 400 years. No. He goes, you know, the wilderness is the wilderness, but I'm taking you to a promised land. I am going to deliver you. Now you're going to have to get up and keep moving. You know, there are times when you're out hiking or backpacking and you just get so sore. You just want to stop and, and just quit. 
But if you've hiked in, the only way to get out is hiking out. And you might as well finish because if you sit there too long, if you guzzle a bunch of water, you'll get cramps in your side. If you sit there too long, your legs are going to cramp up. It's just going to hurt that much more when you get up. So he's kind of cheering us on going, come on, one step at a time. One little move at a time. Let's keep moving. And so he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now this seems like a, it it seems like something that doesn't fit with everything else that he's been saying. He's been going through all this, the pain, the, the, the discipline, the education, you know, come on, get moving. And then he goes, pursue peace with all men. Well, I believe why he put it there is that by far, most of the pain that comes into our lives has to do with people. Most of the discouragement, most of the frustration, most of that which causes us to just be wanting to give up, it's people. And he says, no, you've got a race to run. So you do what you can to be at peace with everyone. And really, most of the time, it's not that hard to be at peace with people. Even people who are really creeps, who are really pushing for their own way, all you have to do is tell them, yeah, you're right. All you have to do is quit arguing with them, and they're happy. They go off thinking they told you. You know, boy, you sure folded, you know. Well, so what? Big deal. All of the agony that we go through in our lives because we're too prideful to just let somebody else have their way. Now, I'm not going to let somebody else tell me what to do with my life when God has told me what to do. But a lot of times it's just feeling like I need to straighten someone else out or feeling that somebody needs to know I've been treated wrongly and this needs to stop. I get into one of these deals today where I bought my son a computer and from a big company that's supposed to be really great with customer service. And the computer didn't work right from the word go. And their tech support people strung me along. Okay, it's a software problem. It's not hardware. Okay, so I'm reinstalling the system, reinstalling drivers, doing all this stuff. Finally, I tell them, look, you just need to fix this. A new computer should work. And, and so they said, okay, well, we'll send you a new hard drive. I'm sure that'll fix the problem. So I wait a few days. I get the hard drive. It comes. It's a refurbished hard drive for a new computer. And then they send me some floppy disks with it. And the thing doesn't have a floppy drive. There's no way to. And so I'm calling them today. And I was on the phone. It was hands-free. I'm doing all kinds of other work while I'm waiting, listening to their music and everything. But ultimately, they're saying, sorry, the 30 days is up when you can exchange it. We can't give you another computer. And I'm going, I bought this for my son. It's never worked. Come on. And And I'm bouncing from department to department. And you know, probably the time and the energy and everything that I've put into this thing, I should have just thrown it away and bought another one. I would have come out ahead. But here I am, I'm there, I'm, I'm trying to prepare a message and I'm arguing with tech support and I was trying to be nice, but you know, it's just like, you know, why am I so upset about this stupid computer? And so often in our lives, little things like that can just dominate us, can just take over. And the wise thing to do is go, how can we settle this as simply as possible? It's just all the energy that we burn up trying to, even when we're right, trying to prove that we're right, is it really worth it? Is that really what we need to do? And so he's saying, 
look, you have all this stress in your life. You have too much to do. You've got a race to run. You can't afford to be fighting with people. You cannot, people who run marathons, 26 miles, or, you know, ultra marathon, 100 miles, they can't afford to be dinking around. You know, you don't see, these guys take off on their race, and they're all wearing their little running outfits and stuff. You don't see them poking each other and, you know, goofing around, putting each other in a headlock and giving them a noogie, and, you know, no, they've got a race to run, they're going. They don't horse around. And he, he's saying here, look, you've got a race to run. I know it hurts sometimes, it's hard, but get going and quit fighting with each other. It's not worth it. As much as you can possibly do, look for peace. Bring peace into other people's lives as well. And holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Ultimately, if you don't clean up your act, nobody's going to see the Lord. You're not going to ultimately be who he wants you to be unless you allow him to do the work in your life that he wants to do. He goes on to say, looking carefully, lest, and, and again, looking, referring back to verse 2, looking unto Jesus, looking carefully at Jesus, you could say, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Here's another one of those warning statements in the book of Hebrews, and there's still a couple more to go, but he says, Understand this, if you don't get going, if you don't keep running the race, if you don't just try to keep peace with the people around you and stay focused on the prize, if you don't keep looking at Jesus, there's a danger. If you take your eyes off him, Peter took his eyes off Jesus and sunk when he was walking on the water, but he said, if you do that and you take your eyes off him, you might fall short of his grace. Now, how do you fall short of his grace? Well, for them, it would be not entering into the grace that he's purchased and instead going back to a legal relationship. For us, it might be, I'm not quite as gracious as God wanted me to be. I want to be gracious to you because God is gracious to me. Jesus said that you need to forgive other people so God can forgive you. So am I being gracious enough? Pastor Chuck has an expression he uses all the time. I would rather err on the side of grace. I would rather show too much grace than not enough grace, in other words. I don't want to fall short of the grace of God. And in my dealings with people, and in my caring about them, and in the day-to-day -day communication I have with them, and in those relationships in which I'm involved, I don't ever want to fall short of God's grace. Why? Because I'll fall short of it myself. You're going to be judged by the measure with which you judge others. So if I'm gracious to others, well, I can expect them to be gracious to me. But if I am going to live by the law and I'm going to lay it down, make no mistake about it. You're not going to get any grace. If you're the type of person who's always pointing out other people's errors, if you're pounding them for their failure, do you think they're going to cut you slack? Parents, if you don't show grace to your kids at all, if, you don't, if there isn't any way that they can make a mistake and it can just be chalked up to grace, well, I know you don't make as, much, as many mistakes as they do. At least they don't find out about them. But when you have lowered the boom on your kids and when you have ruled them with an iron hand and when you have laid the law down for them, 
I'm just telling you, I'm warning you. It's a fact. I've seen it happen hundreds and hundreds of times. The day is going to come when you're going to need grace from them. And it might not be there. You may make a mistake so horrible. And they're going to think, you know, you always told me. No, there's no slack. We're not going to. And they won't be gracious to you. And the thing that's more frightening than that is it's possible that God can't show his grace to us if we aren't showing grace. I don't understand that, but the Bible teaches it. And so the warning here is to say, look, understand this. In the race that we're running, in this need that we have to eliminate distraction from our lives, and we have to stay focused on Jesus, if we don't do that, we might come short of what that new covenant is all about. And in this context, boy, you don't want to go back to the old covenant. It didn't work because it only works for perfect people. And so he says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The example of Esau, somebody who didn't make it into the hall of faith. A guy who, for a bowl of soup, gave up the birthright. Gave up that which was his. And then was conned out of the blessing. And he ends up with almost nothing when he had everything and he didn't appreciate it. To him, all the spiritual heritage, the opportunity to be the priest of the family, all of his father's possessions, two-thirds of them, it meant nothing to him. Right now, I just want a bowl of soup. And so again, the warning here, be careful. Because though God is gracious, it's possible for you to trade away that grace. It's possible for you to opt out of the new covenant and say, you know, it's too much trouble. I quit. And that's what Esau said. I quit. Later, he felt bad. He wanted to get back in the race, but it was too late. He had already given it away. And so he's saying, and again, this is tied in with the weight and sin that we need to get rid of in the beginning of the chapter. And he's saying, don't hang on to something that might cost you everything. Don't protect an area of your life that you say, God, I don't want you to touch that one. And it's like trading away eternity for a morsel, for just a little snack. And there are a lot of people who do that. There are just certain things they won't let God do in their lives. And they hang on to those things. And as a result, they fall short of the grace of God. And so he's saying, don't do that. Don't be like that. Oh, I think I skipped over the part that says uh, in verse 15, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And that's it. The roots of bitterness, those things that cause us to just get angry, that cause us to to just want to give up on everyone, to isolate ourselves, to basically shut down and say, that's it, I don't want to play, I'm taking my ball and going home. And we do that, we don't finish a race that was winnable. We don't finish doing something that would have been the most glorious thing for us to accomplish it. The opportunity to go into the presence of God and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we trade it away for what? A morsel of bread, a bowl of stew? We're going to trade it away because we were too tired or it hurt too much? It hurts anyway. It's going to hurt no matter what. Don't give up. 
Don't stop running the race. Don't allow yourself to be put on a shelf because of something somebody told you, because of some unfair criticism or some abuse that came into your life. You hang on to your excuses, and they will choke you out. They will destroy you. Get up and run. Get up and move, he's saying. You can do this. Four, verse 18, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Referring back to when the law was given, the fire, the noise, the smoke. It was so awesome. It was so terrible that they begged, it's this saying that they begged that the word wouldn't be spoken to them anymore. Back there in Exodus chapter 20, they said, Moses, you talk to us. We don't want to hear from God anymore. What a horrible thing. What a terrible thing. God was speaking. They could all hear it. And they said, we don't want to hear from God. We'll just, we'll hear from Moses. <laughs> Trading away that, but you can understand it. It was 3,000 people died from a plague the day the law was given. The day the church was started, 3,000 people were saved. He goes on in verse 20 to say, For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. They were just going, ah, this is awful. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But contrary to the establishment of the law, you've come to Mount Zion. That's in Jerusalem as opposed to Sinai, which is over in the desert. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels. Angels are all around. The general assembly and church of the firstborn, that is, that's the church, that's people who have become Christians. He says the, the, uh, who are registered in heaven, of course, names written in the book of life, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, that's referring to the Old Testament saints, they're there too, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel first gave a sacrifice, and God accepted him, and he was the first person listed in Hebrews 11. He was also the first guy to have his blood shed. And, and he's saying, look, look at that. That's nothing. You've got blood that has given you the ticket to be in the presence of God, to spend an eternity in the new Jerusalem, to be there with the angels, with God, with Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to be hanging out with these Old Testament saints, the Hebrews 11 people and all the rest of them who had faith in God. They're going to be there and the whole church, the body of Christ, it's going to be there with us. He's saying, look, I see the finish line. I see what's going to happen. Don't you realize you're going to win this thing? It's, you're in, it's okay. Don't quit, don't give up, hang in there. It's gonna be so great. The party, the celebration, the, a seven-year feast, an eternity of celebrating all that God has done. Keep your eyes focused on him, and he's the mediator, he's the one who will take you there. Now, are you going to turn back and opt for something that could only scare you 
and look back to a system that could only condemn you? Are you going to receive from him that work that says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came to save. I have come that you would have life and that more abundantly. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And then another word of warning here at the end of the chapter. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. He's saying, look, he's good. He has blessings for you. He wants to do an awesome work in your life. But make sure you listen. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, if you were going to be be nailed because you didn't listen to him here on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So he says, understand this, yeah, it's going to be tough. Before that glorious get-together that he's talking about, before that heavenly Jerusalem where we're going to live, before the culmination of all that we've endured in life for the payoff, the payday, understand this, he says, there's going to be a shakedown. God says that he's going to shake heaven and earth. He's going to separate, and this is probably a sexist comment, but the men from the boys. He's going to say whatever can be shaken is going to be gone. And that which is left, those are the people who endure. Those are the people who hang in there. And life right now, this period of time and all the way through the tribulation, it's a process of sifting. It's a process of going through and there's wheat and chaff and someday he's going to separate it. He says, you can't know the difference between the wheat and the chaff now. In the last days, it'll be, it'll be separated. And so he's saying here, it's going to be shaken. This is, this is the time when we separate the people who really do get it, who really are a part of his body, and the people who are just going along for the ride. And when the tough time comes, you find out who the real believers are, is what he's saying. And then he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Since we are of the people, he's saying, who have an eternal kingdom, who the victory has already been won, all we have to do is abide all we have to do is hang in there, keep plodding along. The victory is already ours. We can win this race. He says, now, our weapon, grace. Understand this, it's the only way to get there. It doesn't make sense. It makes more sense to bang somebody over the head with the law, to tell them, you've got to be good, you've got to obey, you've got to do all the right things. And he goes, no, that's what kills The letter of the law kills. The spirit is that which gives life. The old covenant, all it could do was condemn. The new covenant, the new deal, what God wants to do in our lives, ultimately to strengthen us, to help us, to keep us moving, to bring us to the victory, it's grace. It's all grace. It's simply accepting what he has done for us and not adding anything to it. It's recognizing that there isn't anything we can do to make him love us less and there isn't anything we can do to make, him, to make him love us more. It's all him. It's all grace. And so not only we look at Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, but we point to Jesus 
and we make sure that everyone around us understands this isn't about being good. This isn't about being religious. It's not taking steps to God. It's already been done. The price has been paid. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The glorious truth that the victory has been won. And the only thing that will keep us from that victory is to add to it, is to take, in their case, add a little law with grace. Come short of the grace and make it, well, you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. That was a real common phrase that people used to give in legalistic circles. It's not that. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. It's all of grace. It's all him doing it. So given that encouragement, let's go to the finish line. We've already won. The party's there waiting for us. Don't come short. Don't turn back. Don't compromise the truth of God's word. Understand this. This race is a race that you will run with him. He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The victory has been won. Be encouraged. Don't quit. For our God is a consuming fire. Nice way to end the chapter on hope. God is a consuming fire. But he does. He burns up everything that isn't gold. He burns up all the chaff. He burns up the wood, hay, and stubble. What's going to be left is what lasts. And that's why you need to make sure that you don't spend your time trying to accumulate as much wood, hay, and stubble as you can. It's all going to burn. The only thing that doesn't burn is our relationship with him. And the opportunities that we have to involve other people in that relationship, as John said in 1 John, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship, our working together, our being together as a church, as a body, as Christians in families and groups and friends, hey, that's what lasts. That'll never burn. The grace of God that you show to people, that'll never burn. The law... It's already been burned. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD and there hasn't been a sacrifice since. And that didn't work when they had the temple. Our God is a consuming fire. He has a way of dividing between that which is real and that which is fake. That which is permanent and that which is temporary. And our job is to make sure that our life is about looking at Jesus. It's not about looking at people. It's not about looking at great men of God, great men of the faith of the past, you know, absorbing biographies and just, oh, I'm a big fan of this person or that person. Or I love this pastor. I love hearing this person speak. Or, yeah, I'm a follower of this guy, of this woman. It's about Jesus. And what happens when we put anyone else on that pedestal? When we line anyone else up in that kind of a role in our lives? We can fall short of the grace of God. We can miss that which he really wants to do in our lives. There is no, uh, it's, there's that song that says, to see your lovely face ever before my eyes. This is my prayer, make it my strong desire, that in my secret heart, no other love competes, no rival throne survives, and I serve only you. And that's what it's about. That's what the hope of our future is, is that we see Jesus so clearly that nobody else can mess up the picture.
that nobody else will muddy the, the stream, that no one else will trip us up because we're going, I'm running a race. I have a race to run. I can't afford to be tripped up. I can't afford to have baggage. I'm looking at him. I'm following him. And I know the ultimate outcome already, we're going to win. We're going to win this race. And I'm telling you, you can do it. Whatever it is that you're going through right now in your life, whatever it is you face later on this week, next month, next year, know this, you're still in the race. It's not over until he takes you home. And until that happens, I don't care if you're lying there in a coma in a hospital bed and you can't talk and and you can't do anything but lie there, God has you there for a purpose. And when he's finished with you, you'll feel the tape, you'll hit the finish line, you'll realize... Yeah, like Paul said, I've run the race. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown of life, not for me only, but for everybody that can't wait to see him. Let's pray. God, thank you for putting us in the race. And Lord, you tell us to be thankful in everything. And so, God, I want to thank you right now for the painful education that we're all enduring in one way or another. Because we believe that you as our teacher, you know best. Father knows best. And God, we just want to stay in the race. Lord, if there are people here tonight who have fallen down and stumbled... They're ready to quit. Lord, straighten their path. Strengthen their feeble legs. Help them to realize the finish line's out there. You've gone before us, and we can win this. We want to win. We want to finish the race that you've called us to run. Help us not to pollute your gospel. Help us not to come short of your grace. Help us not to go back into something that's inferior to the new covenant. Write your law in our hearts. Lead us by a relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.